The views and opinions expressed by guests on Connected do not necessarily reflect those of Side Street Studio Arts. Welcome to Connected, the podcast from Side Street Studio Arts, where we have conversations with members of the arts community. I'm Nick Mataragas, uh, one of the assistant directors at Side Street, and uh, joining me this week is Ellie Maitland. Um, Ellie is a very unique individual in the performing arts community as uh, she does something that's both amazing and something that's kind of part of a bygone era that is now kind of making a comeback. Um if, if I'm using the term correctly, you are a Foley artist, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Perfect. Great. Because I, 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 I always just assume that's the right term, but it could be like sound engineer or something. I don't know. Well, that is a bit of a, a can of worms in and of itself. There are some people that do insist that Foley is uh, specific uh, to film and relies on bespoke sound effects that are created to be specifically synced to picture. But because of, like you mentioned, we're in basically a renaissance of audio drama at this point. Um, and that is largely because of podcasting, uh, because there are just as many fiction podcasts out there as there are nonfiction podcasts. Hopefully your uh, audience are, is aware of that and excited to dive into some of those if they haven't been previously. Um, but it's kind of one of those things where it's named after Jack Foley who was a Foley artist or originally known as a walker or a stepper at Universal Pictures back in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Um, and he is um, credited with pioneering a lot of the concepts and a lot of the execution that is still used today. But there were a lot of other people at other studios that were doing the same work. Uh, part of why it took so long for the term Foley to be coined as it is. It wasn't actually added to the dictionary until after Jack Foley passed away. But it was apparently uh, in pretty common parlance, at least at Universal Studios, as recently as the 1950s. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't know it was actually named after anyone. Um, yes. I always, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned that it's like film, because I always, like the first time somebody tells me, uses the term Foley artist around me, I always think of, I always picture like in, an, in a radio studio, the guy with the giant sheet of metal making mm -hmm. the thunder sounds. Oh, I've got so many stories for you. Um, so yeah, originally um, the uh, Jack Foley was working at Universal as an interstitial director. He did all the close-up shots for films, but the year that Universal's big film was supposed to be Showboat was 1928. And that was gonna be a silent film adaptation of the stage musical. But a couple of months before that was uh, slated to be released, Warner Brothers released Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer, complete with actual jazz singing in it. So I always imagined that the CEO, CFO of um, of Universal at the time, Carl Lamley, like burst into Jack Foley's studio, you know, chomping on a cigar, like old time businessman style. It's like, Foley, showboat's primed to sink. We gotta make this bird sing. And there are some differing uh, opinions and histories about why Jack was uniquely suited for this position. But there is some history that indicates he was a radio man before he started working at Universal Studios. And I think that's probably the most likely thing because while he is credited with, as a pioneer for this, 
it's the same kind of thing where everyone's kind of a pioneer where they get their name on something because they were discovered or they were witnessed doing it, but they were probably doing things that they had also absorbed from a lot of other comparable artists. And when you think about it, a lot of the stuff that we're using in Foley work was used in film that had a precedent in radio and had a, a precedent not only in radio, but also in, um, in silent film, which doesn't sound like it makes sense, but uh, when silent films were traveling around uh, film houses back in those days, they weren't actually silent. The film itself was, but they were often accompanied by trap drummers. Trap is short for contraption or trappings, depending on, again, who uh, your source material is. But these were percussionists that had these large, elaborate, amazing uh, setups of drums and whistles and bells and dog barks and all these other things that were they they were using to punctuate all the action in the movie it's pretty uh well recognized already with things like um with the films of buster keaton or charlie chaplin those are probably like the most well recognized ones at this point but there are also um like organizations that still present uh silent films like they were originally presented to uh film houses a friend of mine actually is a gentleman named Nicholas White, and he has an internationally recognized uh, collection of vintage percussion effects that were uh, used in the 20s and 30s. And there's some really, really cool stuff that I've also gotten to use in some of my own stage shows at this point. That is so cool. Uh, now I'm just kind of picturing like a, like a one-person band performing with the, with a silent film, <laughs> which That's is kind of... much what it was like, yeah. That's kind of an amazing visual to think about. Um, yeah. So... And... Sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, but a lot of folks that were uh, active in that medium then made the transition to film to the talkies after silent films started getting less and less popular. Orin Nichols, for example, is most well known at this point, if anyone knows who she is, as the sound designer that worked alongside Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater on the air. She created the sound effects for his infamous production of War of the Worlds, uh, the sound of the Martian craft's lid unscrewing was her unscrewing a jelly jar in the basin of a toilet because she needed that sound like to echo in that particular way. Uh, but she and her husband had been on the on the vaudeville circuit before she started working with Orson Welles. But I like to joke that we don't call it, we call it fully work instead of being an orator because that term was already taken. <laughs> There's also Jimmy McDonald, who was doing very similar work with Walt Disney Studios around the same time, too. He also even eventually took over the voice acting for Mickey Mouse after Walt Disney retired. But we still say, let's go to the Foley studio, not let's go to McDonald's. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. Uh, yes. I think one of the most incredible things about, about Foley work is this kind of amazing alchemy that it is because it's you know sometimes it's things that actually fit the sound is actually coming from a thing that that we're seeing but so like for example like a lot of times you see a, you hear a bone breaking on, on film or in radio it's like celery snapping and things like that like the ingenuity of that is amazing to me very much so um i tend to break the different types of uh instruments you use into three categories one of them being um uh, like sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So like fabric will be used for the sound of clothing in uh, like big gestures or action sequences or shoes will be used for the sound of footsteps or there are certain sounds that are never going to be as good as the real McCoy, like the sound of a soda uh, can pop topping or 
the flick of a light switch. Um, then there would be uh, objects that are built specifically for the job. A good example of that would be the Foley door. A lot of people probably, if they do know anything about this medium, would, uh, would think of the little tiny door that people use for opening and shutting door sound effects. Um, another really cool object, though, would be a marching machine, which is a series of wooden pegs that are strung together. And if you roll them, they can be the sound of uh, an army of foot soldiers marching in lockstep. Um, and then like musical instruments would also fall in that category because there's a lot of music and musicality in the way that we tell sounds through stories, through, I mean, uh, through the way things have been scored over the years, very specifically also through cartoons. I think that's one of the first uh, introductions a lot of our generation has to sound in story is the way that things were punctuated in uh, like Warner Brothers cartoons or the Disney, like the original shorts. And those are also very similar to the stuff that you would see story-wise in vaudeville or in Commedia dell'arte before that or in Shakespeare's time before that. And so all these things are kind of grandfathered into the way that we absorb sound in story. It's, it really is beautiful. And I love that idea of the sound being part of the storytelling. I always yeah. think of like Peter and the Wolf where the, the soundtrack to that is so much telling that story. It's an amazing thing. Um oh so That's a great example. Yeah. yeah. So you and I actually have met a few times in person. Um, I don't know, like four or five times. Um, and it's through podcasting mostly. I think actually always through podcasting because we kind of uh, are in kind of parallel circles of podcasters, I guess is a good way to put it. Um, and so you, you per, uh, participate in a lot of um, audio drama podcasting, right? Um, that's my favorite medium to work in. Most specifically, when I'm really lucky, it'll be shows that were originally presented or produced on stage and then podcast after the fact. Um, there's a lot in this medium that is exciting to me, not just from a sound design scheme of things, but also from an audience participation scheme of things. The idea of closure and the idea of complicity when it comes to uh, Foley performance are really important to me. Closure is a concept that I stole from uh, comic design and concept. Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud. Uh, some of you might have read that before. His uh, theory of understanding what's going on in comics is that comprehension occurs between panels in that area called the gutter. So if you have a square where someone is screaming and then you have a close up in the next square of a knife and then in the next square after that you see a dead body, the understanding of the sequence of actions is occurring in between those squares. And I think that's very similar in audio drama where you'll hear someone talk about a thing and then you'll have a sound effect. So the brain is making the connection between what, that, what those two things mean. So in a way, I like to think also, because I work a lot in horror storytelling, is the audience is just as responsible for a murder taking place as anyone that's uh, creating the sound effects in the story on stage. That's that's interesting. It makes me think of, I went to design school, so it makes me think of Gestalt theory, where it's the idea of the mind just makes the connections that you let it. Um, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I, um, I haven't studied that, but I'd like to hear more about that. And and think about how that might mean I'm even writer than I already was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're talking about the idea of this performance. And, and one of the things that I, I made me think immediately when we started doing this podcast that I wanted to talk to you is that 
um, you you do this. Uh, you can do this live in front of an audience during during a production of an audio drama, and it's fascinating to watch. I don't know if you've ever seen like video of yourself doing it or anything, but it is like mind blowing, and and it it really, you know, you. you I, we watched you uh, a couple years ago at that St. Patrick's Day event uh, for C2E2 uh, with, with Death Scribe. And both me and my friend Amanda were just like, wow, that is amazing. Oh, you are so kind. Thank you so much. <laughs> so um, did you like how did you prepare for something live, like in person like that versus like in a studio? Oh, um, that's a lot of the imaginative work that I'm doing even before we get into rehearsal. Um, when we're working with the actors playing the voice characters, a lot of that is about uh, finessing timing. So when you're going through a script for the first time, a lot of the sound effects are probably going to be written in already, but because we're responsible for not only creating or uh, illustrating the actions of those characters, but also the world that they're inhabiting, we're trying to figure out uh, the the opportunities that we have, the challenges that we have based on the number of personnel we have handy, the amount of rehearsal time we're going to have, the budget we're going to have for uh, purchasing props if we don't already have them or things like, and again, since I work in horror a lot, there's usually a lot of really visceral and gory stuff going on in those uh, stories, which means uh, a lot of expendables. Uh, like you were saying, uh, celery is really notoriously used for breaking bones in Foley work. Um, in film, you use a lot of uh, fruit as well as veggies because like that's good for the, the gushy, gory kind of sound effects. Like um, someone getting stabbed is probably going to be melon hmm. most of the time. Something you would try to avoid in um, stagecraft, though, because uh, fruit has sugar in it and fruit juice gets everything sticky. And so unless you have a substantial amount of time in between those sequences to clean everything up, you're not only running the risk of everything getting kind of gross and weird, but also possibly also uh, getting sticky and uh, messing with the props that you're going to be handling immediately afterwards. So there are just a lot of different things that you have to take into account when you're working on a stage show. You figure out what the sounds are going to be, you figure out how to uh, execute those sounds, and then a lot of rehearsal is uh, finessing the placement of the props uh, as you can grab them. And when you have the time, the luxury of time to make it more stage conscious, figuring out what the best way is going to be for milking the reveal of those props for the audience. That goes again to the idea of closure because the story continues for them even as they see you picking things up. The audience that is paying the most attention to the Foley table is probably trying to get ahead of the narrative in certain ways. So you want to make sure that you're not spoiling things for them by making it obvious what you're going to be handling next, unless it's something that you want them to be complicit in, in a certain way. One of my favorite examples of that would be, we did this show called Earwigs, written by a playwright named Joseph Zettelmeyer. That was about that urban legend of earwigs crawling in your ear and laying eggs in your head. So we have this one character that's complaining about a splitting headache for a good half a page before her scene counterpart says, and then it happened. And so at that point in the narrative, I took off the fancy shrug I was wearing because described is also a formal event and put on an apron 
I came out <laughs> in front of the Foley prop table that I had been uh, standing behind this whole show and lift a black drop off of a pumpkin and pull out a sledgehammer. So the audience can see what's going to happen and it helps them build the anticipation for that moment too. The rest of the sound, because of course that pumpkin was for her brain, her head shattering, but you also want the gush of the brain matter escaping and then the cascading insects running away after that. So I had a partner who had a six foot long rain stick held aloft above their head and also had a soaked sponge. So the combination <laughs> of sounds was the crack of the pumpkin, the ring of the sponge, and the shh of the rain stick being uh, chucked down really fast. So you had the sound of all the insects escaping. Wow, that yeah. is that is so cool. Um, <laughs> that is so ridiculously cool. And uh, yeah, that is that is such a nice concept of the idea of adding to the anticipation by by giving them a little bit of foreshadowing once in a while and giving them that little treat of exactly. oh, it's yeah. gonna happen one of the most rewarding things that can happen for me at a stage show is if we have an intermission if audience members start coming up to the table to look at what props i haven't interacted <laughs> with yet because every once in a while, you'll have someone who like comes up to the table and starts demanding like, what's that for? What are you going to use that for? I bet I know what you're going to use that for. And then you know that like you've gotten them involved and emotionally invested. And that's really what we're all doing with theater too. Like not only does it mean that we have these different ways of engaging an audience, but you've got the instant gratification of not having to worry about when it's ultimately podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. That that's awesome. So you, you mentioned that you, that at that point you were working with a partner on that specific sound. Mm -hmm. um, how big is the Foley community in Chicago? Um, that is a really good question. I am one of the few people I know that specializes to the extent that I do, because we have a, such a vibrant theatrical community here, but most folks that are sound artists are more dedicated to sound design uh, and that being like more traditionally uh, understood pre-recorded sound that is going to be uniform from show from stage show to st stage show and performance to performance. Uh, the risk that's involved in live stage craft is another one of the things that I find really fulfilling about my own particular niche. Um, I know off the top of my head, a couple of people that have done it uh, multiple times, but not anyone that spe specializes to the extent that I do. Um, Daniel Pickle is a really talented musician who also does Foley, and he works with a company called the Whiskey Radio Hour. They do a quarterly anthology uh, open source radio show um, in the before times, I should say. <laughs> uh, they were performing consistently out of Chief O'Neill's. Um, there's also a couple of other friends of mine that have done Foley with a comedy company that I uh, work with frequently, Locked in a Vacancy Entertainment. And they've got a long catalog of uh, former shows or previous productions on their website, if people are interested in listening to some of that work. Um, and let's see. Oh, and also Sean Gowdy is a really talented Foley practitioner. He is probably most well-known to folks uh, as a sound designer and as the Foley artist for American Blues Theater's annual production of uh, It's a Wonderful Life live on radio, live on stage. Um, and they've been doing that show for over 20 years now. Wow. Yeah. 
that's 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 wild over 20 so one years. of the great things also about the chicago scene is you're uh you have so many interdisciplinary artists here it's rare to find someone that is uh just an actor I and mean, that's not a dig on people that uh find that to be the most consistent and fulfilling way to uh further their craft i just think that you see a lot more theater artists here than people that do traditional like do just one kind of theater all the time yeah i i think that's probably true i i've noticed that and being somebody that likes to dabble in different areas i i totally get that yeah. um so how did you how did you specifically get into foley um ultimately logically but very indirectly i think is the best way to put that um because i started out thinking i wanted to be uh just an actor that's what i went to school for as well i went to southern methodist university uh, and got an acting bfa uh i graduated in the same class as a lot of folks that are in the house theater of chicago which is a very spectacle oriented theater company and i'm on the letterhead there, I haven't worked with them consistently for a number of years, but I got a lot of early Chicago oriented training there that I find really, really valuable and applicable to the way that I pursue Foley to this day. Um, they have a very um, Brechtian aesthetic in that they're making a lot of shows where the audience can see all the moving parts if there's a puppet on stage you can see the puppeteer manipulating things if there's someone doing wire work you can see the people that are hoisting and uh pulling the pulley system so everyone is aware that they are watching a theater show and i think that also adds to that level of complicity where the audience knows what work is going into making the show work and is that therefore more emotionally invested in making it work because following the story and agreeing on the story we're telling is something that everyone, both the audience and the artists involved are in together. And I think that's really cool. Um, I did a lot of stage managing with them when I first got to Chicago. I think a lot of folks do uh, behind the scene works when they're first getting into the scene here and figuring out not only how everything in Chicago theater works, but how they make sense as part of that machine. Um, and that has been, really valuable to me as well uh, for the way that I deconstruct scripts. Um, a lot of the ways that I write in my cues and notate scripts, um, both in spreadsheets for tracking my own props and stuff like that are based on the experience I had in stage management. Um, so while that wasn't ultimately what I wanted to be doing, it was extremely valuable for the skill set I needed to be kind of like a, a, a one person shop when it comes to how I bring this work to other companies when I'm hired uh, just for like one-off shows. Um, and one of the best things about the house is how integrated the lights and sounds have always been to everything in their productions. And so calling those shows was really complicated, but it was also like really good um, training, not only for seeing the minutiae that could be responsible for dictating a, a change in mood and scene, but also uh, working under really talented sound designers that gave me more appreciation for the nuances in how sounds help build a, the sound, uh, build the world of a story. Wow, that's really cool. So how did you go from, from that then to, to like stage managing and stuff like that to, to actually getting into Foley and because like, not only are you, really great at Foley and it's amazing, but also like 
your your knowledge base towards it like just talking to you just now is is so deep like how did how did that happen um i mean good question and thank you also you're throwing very kind words at me (laughs) so but um so i worked with uh house and mostly stage managing for probably three years uh straight and you know how it is in uh chicago's theater scene the more theater you're doing the less you're seeing So in a weird way, I wasn't really exposing myself to a lot of what the scene had to offer until I actually started acting other places and acting even in house shows, which meant I was getting days off, which stage managers never do. Um, And I'm an anomaly when it comes to the radio drama um, aficionados that are make up a lot of the scene right now, because I didn't grow up listening to lights out or river mcgee and molly and a lot of the things that um we had access to in the 80s and 90s my chief familiarity with foley was seeing it lampshaded on sitcoms i remember there was an episode of punky brewster where she won a radio show competition and there was an episode of frazier where he and his friends were putting together a radio uh play production to celebrate the anniversary of the radio station and so these were always instances where there was a jump cut and there was always fully being used as a punchline. So pretty much the sitcom format would be the voice actor says something, jump cut to the Foley artist who did something ridiculous. (laughs) But once I finally started seeing other productions in Chicago, there was this show called Kid Simple that American Theatre Company did and I want to say 2007, 2008. And that was the first time I had ever seen a Foley artist on stage. This show is scripted. So there are sound effects that are getting misdirected over the course of the play. Um, they're all produced practically, but as the story gets more and more complex and confusing, they're going to the wrong things. Like a dog bark might happen when someone kisses their uh, romantic partner or a fart might happen to start a, a car, things like that. And so this was a Foley practitioner creating all of these sounds for this world without the luxury of a jump cut. So he had to be really on top of things. And he was doing a lot of the stuff that I'm so excited by as far as like presenting the props in a way that uh, made the audience keep guessing and stay engaged in what he was doing. And this was an instance where the practitioner was also the designer for the show. Uh, someone I'm really proud to call a friend of mine now, Scotty Izeri, a very talented sound artist. Um, But that was the first time I had ever seen that and thought, oh, this is something that people could do. And I didn't really actively pursue it until the company that I belong to now, Wildclaw, did a fundraiser uh, in their first year uh, as a company called Describe, which is the production that you were mentioning earlier that we had done a subset of in a like a an anthology like festival kind of thing. Um, but this was a, um, an international festival of short horror radio plays where they had a Foley artist on stage. And that was my favorite part of the show to watch. And I was really invested in what they were doing. And I uh, started looking for more opportunities to see things like that in Chicago theater. And once I started actually working with Wildclaw on another show, they ended up needing an extra pair of hands at the Foley table for Describe that year. And 
basically I just have hung on for dear life since then. And anytime I see someone that lists something in a show that involves Foley or live radio or any other number of combinations that might mean there's something I can go and see and hopefully steal, uh, I'm going to go and do that because ultimately all artists are also magpies. There are some very well-established uh, conventions for how we create a lot of the sounds that we're familiar with, but it's also a very innovative, exploratory, experimental discipline. Like I spend most of my time uh, in the before times, I should say again, going through grocery stores, hardware stores, and toy stores, just squeezing stuff. <laughs> I want to see what kind of noises I can make with them. And well, unfortunately, nowadays, that would not only be considered weird and rude, but also possibly fatal. So not doing that so much these days. I could just imagine some of the looks you would get walking through just squeezing things. And I bet I, I bet that I was guaranteed fun to be asked. Hi, can I help you? Like <laughs> within three minutes of entering any establishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Um, you, you've mentioned a couple times uh, the term the before times, and obviously um, the entertainment industry in general has been hugely affected by by COVID. Um, how has that affected you as as a performer? It uh, it's a pretty big bummer. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, the shows that I got so much fulfillment out of having a live audience to play off of and engage with with the the visuals of this medium are rightfully not an option right now. And I think that's an important thing for us to all recognize as well. Like at the risk of getting political, it's not safe out there. And for leaders in the artistic community right now, it's important for us to also agree to that because anytime a company is putting on shows right now, they're saying that they think it's safe. And I cannot in good conscience do that because that would be irresponsible not only to the artists that I work with, but the community that we want to support us. So it's going to be a little while longer before we can really start revisiting the the way things were, even the best parts of the way things were, because there are a lot of issues that we still have with the way that theater has been functioning in our society for decades now that are really coming to light, which is good. It's good for us to be having these conversations, and I wish that it didn't require a pandemic for us to be forced into finally having them. I have been really, really lucky though. I am that traditional Chicago artist with a day job and that has been in litigation support, which hasn't slowed down. So I'm still gainfully employed. I have food and roof. So in those respects, I'm very lucky. I also have had really great experiences networking and making friends through the virtual world through this time, because that's the way that we've most effectively rallied around each other to offer support and uh, continue our friendships. And I've actually worked with a couple of new collaborators over the past year, mostly through Zoom uh, collaborations, which are valuable, which are valuable, but also frustrating simply because Zoom is not sound software, it's conferencing software, which means that the sounds that we are trying to make to support our stories are not going to be served the way they would have been by having an awesome mixer and sound engineer team at uh, in our service when we're creating all these sounds live. Uh, things are going to cut out. Things are going to be uh, condensed in ways that don't serve the sound to the full robust extent that we are used to. And in some ways, we've been really spoiled by that, and I miss it. 
but it does also mean just different creative problem solving and different ways of collaborating. Uh, an experience that I'm still really proud of was a production I did of Julius Caesar uh, about eight months ago at this point, where I was mentioning earlier that one of the big challenges that you have when you're designing for live shows is the number of hands you have at your disposal. And so the biggest moment in Julius Caesar would be when all the senators are stabbing Caesar. And so in this instance, I had to do some delegating with the other uh, artists that were working on the show with me, in this case, the voice actors. So I had all of the voice actors playing senators create the own, their own sounds of unsheathing their daggers, which they were using just uh, cutlery from their own kitchens to uh, accomplish. And then I handled all the gore sounds as they were making exertion sounds of uh, stabbing and brutalizing this man. So it was them with their voices and their knives and me with a bag of lettuce and celery and a soaked chamois for as the stabbing sounds all got juicier and gushier and grosser. And one of my favorite things about that is having literally created a Caesar salad. <laughs> wow. That is, that's so cool. Like, I know I've said it like a bunch of times during this, but like, that's so cool. And, and maybe it's just because I'm geeking out over the, like the whole process, but like the visual of like the, 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 the different parts of it was just so, so fascinating. Um, oh, I think that's another one of the things that's really cool about uh, Chicago, um, our theater scene, and also just our era. Um, this is a rare piece of history where we all have very canonized understanding of story mechanics. I think a lot of that is because of the accessibility we've had to uh, the same like TV and movies from the past 30 years or so. This is the most unified our concepts of standard storytelling have ever been, I think. And that means that the more familiar you are with the what of a story, the more innovation you can take with how that story is told. And I think that's one of the ways that deconstructed stories like through on-stage uh, radio theater are uh, presented. That's one of the ways that why, that's one of the reasons why it's so compelling to us. And also one of the ways that can kind of trick us into getting more emotionally invested than we realize. Um, I love when horror and comedy intersect because uh, one of my favorite directors mentioned one time that it's funny until it's not. <laughs> and that's one of the best ways to trick your audience into getting emotionally invested because they care about things that make them laugh usually. And then suddenly when it stops being funny with those characters and they start realizing how emotionally invested they are in these characters and they get scared for them instead, that can be really interesting. Um, I did a production of The Shadow with Lifeline Theater back in like 2017. And the script that we were remounting from the 30s or 40s or what have you uh, featured a strangler. And there was one instance where he strangled a woman that had a pet parrot. And that had just been me cawing and croaking and fluttering and, and opening and shutting an umbrella. And when he comes back and he strangles the parrot as well, that was me ringing the umbrella, making some squawking noises, and then dropping the umbrella. And half the audience gasped audibly or made some sort of emotional protesting sound when the umbrella was killed and they had just met it five minutes ago 
And that to me is a testament to how desperately we want to be emotionally connected to each other and again, to make those stories work. I, I think that's really interesting. You talking about comedy, like leading into horror, because I also think it can go the other way. Like horror can lead into comedy because laughter can be that release valve when you're feeling that incredible tension. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, I've had that as a performer on stage before where, in a, where the audience got very uncomfortable and they released it through laughter. Um, mm. But also talking about that kind of collective knowledge base of storytelling and and what we know now at, at, through pop culture is something that I think is really interesting. And we, you know, there's there are different people within the theater community. There are people that are like, you know, pop culture stuff that doesn't that doesn't fit into theater. And then there are other people that are like, no, we need to embrace this because it it, it creates commonality in the audience. Yeah. Um, which I think is is great. And I think you can get some really amazing reactions from the audience that way. Absolutely. I'm really curious about what um, what vocabulary is going to still be unified 20 years from now, just because I think we're at a glut of uh, media at this point. So some some kids at the, in these generations may grow up never seeing any new content or they may be seeing only new content or somewhere in between. So it's gonna be really interesting to see like what conventions stick around, what like expressions stick around, what makes sense. Like I know people that only ever use the second half of a uh, figure of speech or only say the punchlines of jokes. What is that going to do uh, to translate to younger generations and what they're understanding about just like the way we're communicating with each other? Yeah. Oh, I had something I wanted to mention too. Uh, yeah. I was talking about vaudeville and commedia earlier. Um, so one of the uh, best ways or most well um, regarded ways to create the sound of thunder in Shakespeare's era uh, was at the big theater uh, theaters that had a thunder run, which was a series of gutters that was constructed over the audience where stagehands would literally roll wooden cannonballs back and forth for the sound of rumbling of thunder. Now, there is this playwright who was active in the late 17th, early 18th century named John Dennis. He had this play called Appius in Virginia. You know that one? Uh, I don't know it specifically. No, it wasn't successful. But <laughs> what was successful was the way that he created the sound effect of thunder. It was a portable, long, thin sheet of metal that uh, people wobbled backstage. He was the inventor of the thunder sheet. Now, when Apius in Virginia closed, about uh, a couple of months later, the same theater remounted a production of Shakespeare's Macbeth, and they used that effect for storm sequences in their production. And that is where we get the expression, you're stealing my thunder. What? I know. That is so cool. Like <laughs> such a weird like that is the, we we could talk about the history of different expressions forever because that's some of the stories behind different expressions are amazing, but that is oh, yeah. that is great. That is a great story. Wow. That is so cool. So you you mentioned um kind of the Chicago theater community is going through some changes, not just because of the shutdown, but you know, we've uh, we've seen uh, I think I think the best way is to put it is an increase in, in w a want for accountability for people in charge. Um, yeah. 
have you seen like because like whether it's been like a me too thing or a diversity thing or just a safety thing or just stop treating us like we don't matter kind of thing mm-hmm. um there's this up upswing and i don't know if you've, you've if you've had experiences with that of hey you know the smaller people the people that are kind of the ones doing the legwork we're taking taking back this 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 community have you have you had experiences with that i have had not enough experiences with that i'm gonna say um i think that there has been a lot of brainwashing from the top down in our culture over the past like i can only speak to the past 15 or 20 years because that's how long i've been active in uh, the theater scene, and also as a grown-up that, you know, got up on our hind legs and made our own decisions. Um, but we have so much that was conditioned into us even early on in theater school about uh, making sure that we were easy to work with, always on time, always knew our stuff, uh, because at the bottom, uh, bottom line, we were all replaceable. And I think that has resulted in a culture of convenient intimidation that means that people are scared to speak up for themselves and typically will only ever do uh, speak out if they're seeing someone they care about is coming to harm. Uh, And that usually probably only happens after they've gotten established enough that they feel like they can get away with it. And I mean, at this point, I'm in my 40s. Most of my fucks fell out. So it's easier for me to have the confidence that I need to and the experience that I've needed in order to call people out on what is not acceptable. But that has also harmed me as an artist and practitioner before as well. Um, And sometimes it's because people are scared of speaking out to their board. Sometimes it's uh, people are scared of speaking out to their friends. It's also a really tricky industry because so many of us are emotionally connected in ways where we're not just turning off our hearts and minds at five o'clock. I think that's really well put. And there is, I think I I agree with you that I think a lot of the issue and that is that whole concept of opportunity of like, I'm going to tolerate this because there's an opportunity here or, uh, you know, coming from an improv theater in the suburbs that I'm no longer with people. Like, I'm like, why are you putting up with that? still? And they're like, well, I, I get stage time. And I'm like, you can get stage time somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that, that lack of, you mentioned confidence, that lack of confidence of you can, you can move on from something not good and find something else. And yeah. I think, specifically Chicago. And since I'm based out in the suburbs, it's a little bit different, but Chicago is, I'm, I'm really proud of the things that are starting to happen. Um, and, and the fact that even in places that people love, like even like the idea of, I love what they do here, but no, there has to be accountability. Um, and I think that's something that because it's such a smaller, more spaced out community, the suburbs scene is a little bit behind on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but it is uplifting to kind of see things starting to happen, but yeah, we gotta, we gotta be better at it. I am cautiously optimistic. Like there are a lot of different things that are, uh, a lot of unfortunate factors because we also like, no one wants to hurt each other's feelings, but we also don't want to be harmed directly ourselves. Um, which often also translates to if someone has a bad experience somewhere, they don't say why they just quietly never work there again. Or 
more direly will say to their friends and colleagues, you don't want to work there either. And so the group that caused the problematic environment in the first place doesn't learn anything yeah. from the experience. They don't know why they are suddenly the persona non grata because they're either unwilling or unable to see the harm that they're ca causing. And when things like that continue to happen, the people that are harmed most directly are your collaborators and your audience. And in an industry, industry town like Chicago, those things don't grow back because there are infinite places people can work instead. There are infinite places people can spend their money instead. Right. And I, I, that's the beautiful thing. And Chicago has for, for better and for worse. It's, it's a community that has its roots in, in this blue collar mindset in, in everything, including theater and comedy and everything where it's like, no, we're here to do a job. And I think that's, what what's kind of beautiful but also it can be harmful at times that idea of this is work yeah and that that is another really important part at the heart of it um i have gotten some opportunities that i really value at this point even to design for uh community theaters out in the suburbs and when i have done that i have been like well paid <laughs> and i have been treated with respect and I have had really um, invested collaborators. And my first takeaway from an experience like that was, well, heck, why does the storefront scene treat itself like it's so much more important than these community theaters? And the best answer I got uh, from that is that the storefront scene is uh, trying to present itself as a step before professionalism or the equity scene. And I, I really appreciate that, but it has to work both ways. It has to be a, a system that expects professionalism from its collaborators and also has to give professionalism in its infrastructure. Oh, 100% agree. The, 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 it's, it's a weird, and to the point where, and I, I know this more in the improv community, but like the idea that performers pay to be in like groups at a theater and then they go and perform on stage and they don't get paid, but the, the theater makes money off of that. And it's like, how is that a professional environment? Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm glad that uh, the Chicago storefront scene seems to finally be getting for want of a better way of putting it forced out of that model, because I think that the disconnect for a long time was well, people are working for us for free, so we can't really enforce any sort of standards on their uh, contributions to us. But then at the same time, how do you turn around and tell an audience that they should be expected to pay $40 a ticket for whatever just happened? That's not <laughs> right. Reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it could, it, I mean, that kind of accountability will, will lead will probably lead to a reduction in number of theaters, but it should lead to better opportunities for those that are working. Well, it's tricky also because a lot of the st uh, system that's been in play uh, for so long and has become standard is uh, very ableist and is also very classist. Like it's been uh, catering to the folks that could give up the time. And that is time that very few people have. And it is something that snowballs where the people that had the time in the first place therefore got experience that they are able to parlay into subsequent opportunities and they're able to hone their craft in ways that people that didn't have that first opportunity uh, are not able to do. 
So even it could be a matter of their building experience. It could just be a matter of their building a resume, but it still means that they are becoming a part of a privileged class that doesn't really that doesn't have a reason to exist. That's outside yeah. of outside of uh, financial privilege. Uh, there was a great talk last week. Um, I'm going to send you a link for after this because I'm not going to do it justice right now. But it was a, a talk dedicated to eradicating the 10 out of 12 system for the very reasons that we're talking about right now, where it's uh, it's not sustainable as a practice for people that have full-time day jobs or families or have uh, other things uh, getting in the way of them being in that room. And it's not even something that equity standards should be adhering to at this point because it, 10 out of 12 is not 8 out of 10. Come on, guys. So for, for people that, that are listening that might not know, could you explain what 10 out of 12 is? Uh, yeah, um, 10 out of 12. I actually just had this conversation with my sister, who's a visual artist, so she didn't know either. So thank you for reminding me. Um, but 10 out of 12 has become the industry standard for the tech weekend that everyone has before the week before a show opens to the audience. And it is called a 10 out of 12 because it's 10 hours of work out of a 12 hour day. So you'll probably get a two hour break in the middle for dinner. But that's also not necessarily uh, an honest way of representing what's going on because probably uh, actors are pressured, encouraged to continue working on problematic sequences in their show during that time. Designers are almost definitely still working uh, because they need the dark time or the quiet time. So at the end of a sequence like that, uh, everyone is emotionally and physically exhausted. You're probably losing more quality time at the end of the day because you're not working very uh, clearly because you're uh, mentally exhausted. And so you're probably gonna have to spend the next, uh, like the beginning of the next day, undoing a lot of what you did the day before. So there are a lot of reasons why this is a flawed system, but has stayed in place because we're conditioned to think that it's supposed to work and that there's something wrong with us if we don't make it work. Right. And it's a kind of societal pressure that goes into the arts when it is not government funded. <laughs> oh, we could go into a whole rant I about the, the state of the arts and funding and things like that. But mm -hmm. um, I think that that also leads to another issue, unless you're, you know, unless you're equity, um, you know, if you're doing anything else, the lack of represent, like the lack of representation, some something out there to help stand up for you. Like that's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, I, it's kind of a weird note to, to finish things up, but I, I do want to, you know, ask, like, do you have any upcoming projects? I know it's kind of a tough time to have anything coming up. Um, well, uh, I, if there are any educators that are going to hear this before February 6th. Um, it's probably not going to be out before February 6th, okay. but uh, then just to know I did something fancy on the 6th. Um, oh, that meant make you mention that you you've done like workshops at like Northwestern and you have multiple Harvard mugs now. I do. Yes. Uh, I I'm very lucky to have a very supportive um, uh, social base and also uh, artistic community around me. I, I am really lucky in that respect. Um, but my next upcoming projects, I'm actually going to be collaborating with uh, Professor Neil Verma and uh, playwright Brett Nevue and composer Matthew Muniz uh, on a production of a new work called American Bottom that is being produced for audio drama through Red Orchid Theater. 
Um, that's going to be happening, being released sometime late spring, early summer. Oh, yes. Um, so, and hopefully in April of this year, I'll be collaborating and performing as a live Foley artist for uh, Quirky Voices, which is a London-based audio drama company. And they'll be doing a show over Zoom, uh, either independently or through the Ireland Hearsay Audio Drama Arts Festival. So uh, you can watch for that information uh, at Quirky Voices on Facebook or the Hearsay Audio Drama Festival in Ireland on Facebook. And other than that, uh, if any of your uh, listeners have questions, I hope you'll send them my way. Awesome. Um, yeah, definitely. And uh, if people want to just kind of experience more of your own work, uh, like already, like done stuff, is there anywhere they can find that? You know, the smartest thing would be for me to have a website at this point, but I sure don't. Um, but I would recommend that you listen to the archives from Wildclaw Theater's Death Scribe Festival, which you can hear on Wildclaw's SoundCloud account. Or you can also go to lockinavacancy.com. Uh, they have archives of all of their comedy shows, and they have been in uh, regular production since 2014. So there's a lot of monthly content out there from there. And there are at least 50 plus Describe pieces out there for you to listen to as well at this point. Wow. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, Ellie Maitland, for joining me. Um, I, I want to thank all our listeners for listening to this episode as well. Um, if you're listening, please uh, make sure you're following us, if not, if you aren't already. Also, rate and review the show, because we really appreciate that. Um, and, you know, you can follow Side Street Studio Arts on social media through or at sidestreetstudioarts.org. And you know what? You can tune in every Wednesday. We're going to come out with a new episode every Wednesday of Connected. Um, also, just as a side note, uh, I think this episode will be out before submissions close, but submissions are open for the Elgin Fringe Festival. Um, you can go to elginfringefestival.com to check that out. Um, but once again, thank you all for joining me. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me. It has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks so much to your listeners. Connected is a Side Street Studio Arts production. Music by Tanner Melvin. Produced by Nick Mataragas. To find out more about Connected and all the great things Side Street Studio Arts offers, please visit sidestreetstudioarts.org.